Bibles, if you would please, and turn to John chapter 19. John 19. just the first of seven verses but we're going to have a look at the whole chapter this morning don't panic it's not that bad first seven verses of john chapter 19 then Pilate therefore took jesus and scourged him and the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe says hail king of the jews and they smote him with their hands Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them behold i bring him forth for you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came forth, then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this morning as we come forward, we just pray that uh, you would guide our time. Father, our focus would be turned upon you. That Father, you would challenge our hearts by the truth of your word. Lord God, that we might know that Jesus Christ uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures that we might be saved. And Father, we do pray that you work in hearts and lives today as anybody here he just knows they're saved, that Father God, you'd speak to them. And those of us who are saved, you would challenge us through your word today. Give me wisdom, I pray from on high. You use me now to your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today, as we know, is called Good Friday. And indeed, it was a good day as far as we're concerned. Because some 2,000 years ago, Christ died upon the cross of Calvary to purchase our salvation. But 2,000 years ago, things did not look so good. Things did not seem so rosy and nice 2,000 years ago. As we come to John chapter 19, Christ has been arrested. He's been brought before Pilate. And Christ is now standing in Pilate's judgment hall. Pilate knows that he has in his presence an innocent man. Barabbas has been offered along with Christ... And Barabbas, the robber, has been chosen in verses 39 and 40 of the previous chapter. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one that uh, at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Not, and now Barabbas was a robber. The Jews now cry for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What was Pilate to do? Release him. After all, he has an innocent man there in his judgment hall. The logical thing would be to let the man go, would be to release him. So is he going to release him? Well, no. What Pilate does is Pilate pronounces sentence of death upon an innocent man. And this is where we pick up the story in John 19. We know firstly the mocking in verses 1. 16. Pilate here makes a series of mistakes. Instead of releasing him, he has him scourged. 
in verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate has already declared Jesus Christ not guilty. Go back to verse 38 of chapter 18. It says, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault. I find in him no fault at all. He's already declared Jesus Christ not guilty by the time we get to John chapter 19. And so for him to send him out to have him scourged, to have him beaten, to have him whipped with a cat of nine tails was simply a gross injustice. It's wrong. And in doing this, perhaps Pilate thought that he could help Jesus and that the mob would be satisfied with that whipping, with that, that excruciating cat of nine tails being put across his back and the mocking that followed. Perhaps he thought that the Jews would be moved to compassion and would want him to be released. Perhaps they would have him set free. But their hearts were hard, and they were determined to kill him. So not only Pilate had him scourged, but Pilate next wrongfully permitted the soldiers to mock Christ. After all, Pilate believed Christ was innocent. In verses 2 and 3, we read this, And the soldiers played a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. They mock him with a mock crown, with a mock robe, with a mock scepter they whip him till he was bruised and bleeding beyond recognition and this being accomplished Pilate went out and announced to the crowd that he would bring forth Jesus again to them seeing that after the scourging he found no fault in him in verse 4 it says Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them behold I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. He's had him beaten and he's had him mocked and ridiculed and he's now going to bring him out to the Jews in hope that they will show sympathy to this one who Pilate finds no fault in. The simple thing is to release him, but Pilate, for the fear of the people, cannot do that. And so he brings him out again with a desire that the people might set him free. And in verse 5, Pilate presents him to the people, then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. Following the declaration of the people, I find no fault in him. He brings Christ out before him. And now he is not only beaten, but he's also a, a symbol of mockery and fun. He's wearing a purple robe. He's wearing a mock crown, a crown of thorns. And he's got in his hand a scepter. Pilate's introduction for him, all bleeding from the Roman rods, was significant. He says in verse 5, he says, Behold the man. Behold the man. Here he is. Here's this one that you want to be put to death. Here's this one that you want to see killed. Here's this one who has done nothing wrong. And I've beaten him and we've mocked him. Surely now, behold the man you'll let him go. Somebody said Pilate's words, Behold, the man were filled with pity for Jesus, contempt for the mob, with fear and panic over his own role in the worsening situation. It's almost impossible to follow the details without believing that Pilate hoped to stir within the hearts of the people some pity 
at this awful sight. There is no other explanation for what's taking place now. If you have an innocent man, you let that innocent man go. But there's something going on here. Pilate, for the fear of the people, can't let him go, and now he wants to stir up simple pity in the hearts of people. But their sympathy is not found. Because in verse 6 it says, And when the chief priests therefore and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate had misjudged the capacity of the human heart for hatred. The sight that should have stirred pity within their heart served to call forth lust for revenge. Expressed by the repeated words, Crucify him! Crucify him! He's an innocent man standing before an angry mob. He's done no wrong. He's now been ridiculed and mocked and scourged and beaten beyond recognition. And they cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Now for the third time, Pilate pronounces Jesus Christ innocent of all charges. At the end of verse 6, Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Three times he's made this declaration. Three times he's declared, I find no fault in him. He's an innocent man. The Jews responded by accusing him of breaking the law for claiming to be God in verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law we ought, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. The pretense is over now. No longer are they trying to accuse Jesus Christ of being the king of the Jews and therefore trying to overthrow Caesar, that he's accused of some form of, of, uh, of rioting and stirring up the, the people to insurrection against Caesar. Their real objection to Jesus Christ is that he claims to be God. So the pretense is over in verse 7. Now they finally declare to Pilate what the problem is. It's got nothing to do with what he claims to be the king of the Jews. What it's to do with is the fact he claims to be God. And the fact is he is God. He's not making a lie here. He's not stating something that's not true. Jesus Christ is God. He's manifest in the flesh. And he's standing there as God. And manifest in the flesh before part, before the people. And the people say, well, we want him put to death. is because he claims to be who he says he is. Through all of this, the most impressive fact of it all is that Jesus Christ has been silent. Verses 8 to 10. For Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid. He went again to the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. And then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? It was the silence of an infinite and overwhelming love. Jesus Christ has said not a word. He's allowed the accusation to be made. He's allowed the scourging to take place. He's allowed the mocking to happen. He's allowed all this to take place this night after he's been arrested and he's said nothing. He's not spoken a word. And the reason why Jesus Christ has this spoken has not spoken up is because of his infinite and overwhelming love. The crown of thorns, the purple robe of mockery, 
the buffeting of brutality drew forth from him no word either of complaint or rebuke because he loved us. The reason why when Pilate said he was not guilty, he didn't speak up or fight back is because he loved us. Go with me quickly to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For it shall grow up before him a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form, no comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected men, and men of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before a shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. The reason why he didn't open his mouth is because he loved you and he loved me. Because he came to die for us. This is why he left heaven's glory. This is why he came down to Bethlehem of Judea at Christmas time and became God incarnate, God manifest in the flesh. This is why he walked amongst men for 33 years. This is why he is here in Pilate's judgment hall. This is why shortly he's about to hang upon the cross of Calvary because he came for this very purpose, to die for you and for me, that we might have eternal life. We might have our sins forgiven. We might have a home in heaven. He came to die for us. So he's been silent at this point. And now Christ speaks in verse 10. Verse 11, sorry. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Jesus says, You could have no power, Pilate. You're not the one sending me to the cross. You're not the one who has the power to crucify me. This has got nothing to do with You have no power except... It's given to you. Jesus sees through the mob. He sees through the maneuvering to see the hand of God in these circumstances. This is God's eternal plan. Christ must die for our sins. And he says the problem is that what they're doing is sin. In verse 11, Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greatest sin. He sinned. Pilate's convinced more than ever that Jesus is not guilty. But as much as Pilate tries to release him for fear of the men, it was greater than his fear of God. In verse 12 we read, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend, whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought forth Jesus forth 
and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called uh, the pavement from the Hebrew Gabbatha. Pilate tries all the more to release him. He's more convinced than ever. Christ speaks his first words, and with those words, he slays Pilate. Pilate understands now that really he does have an innocent man. The ones who are guilty are those who are crying for blood. But Pilate is more fearful of the men than he is of God because they make the declaration that if you let this man go, then you are going to go against Caesar. And Pilate does not want to go against his king. So he tries one last to secure his release in verse 14. So it was the preparation of the pastor at the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. And again, it fails, because in verse 15 we read, but they cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. The intensity of their hatred for Jesus is evidenced in their anger. We have no king but Caesar. You remember, this is a group of Jews who all they want is the overthrow of Caesar. What they want is for their Messiah to come, to establish his kingdom and run out the Roman Empire. They want their Messiah, but they don't want this Messiah. They want a king, but they don't want this king. What they want is a king who will come and will be a physical ruler, will rule in Jerusalem, will overthrow the Roman Empire, and they want Caesar gone. But this king has a heavenly kingdom, and he's coming to bring salvation to all men, and they don't want him. So they want him crucified. And so Pilate, for fear of men, offers him innocent man for crucifixion. Verse 16, then delivered he him therefore under them to be crucified and they took Jesus and led him away Jesus Christ leaves Pilate's judgment hall for Calvary where he's about to die for your sins and mine that's the mockery now look at the crucifixion in verses 17 to 30 the common practice for those sentenced to die on the cross for each of the accused was to carry their own cross. So in verse 17 we read, And he bearing his cross went forth in a place that is called the, the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. And so Christ carries his cross to the place of the skull, to this place which is called Golgotha, just outside the city limits. He's required to wear the accusation that's against him around his neck. And then that accusation will be pinned at the top of the cross to declare what crime he's been crucified. And in this case, in the case of Christ, what he has written on his cross and on his name tag that's on his neck is found in verse 18 and 19 where they crucified him and two with him. And they either on one side and Jesus in the midst and Pilate wrote a title and put it on his cross and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He was accused of what? Being the King of the Jews. He was accused of being what he was. So much so, in verse 20, this title then read, many of the Jews for the place 
where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In other words, he is your king. You wear this. You're responsible for this. I acknowledge his innocent. I acknowledge he's your king, but you don't. You're crucifying him. The time is three o'clock in the afternoon. A mob has gathered at the place called the place of the skull to watch the crucifixion. It says in verse 20, that it says that the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And at the beginning of the verse says, this title then read, Many of the Jews. There's many there. They've gathered around the cross to watch the crucifixion, to watch God's own Son as he dies for their sins, as he dies for sins that he did not commit, as he dies for no crime that he has engaged in. He's dying for their sins, and they gather around the cross to watch the man who's dying on their behalf to watch his crucifixion. The crucifixion was one of the most cruel and shameful forms of death that man has ever invented. It was reserved for the lowest kind of criminal, particularly for those who've committed insurrection against the king. Christ was innocent. You know, today the cross is a symbol of glory and victory. But in Pilate's day, the cross stood for the worst kind of rejection the worst kind of shame, the worst suffering. If you knew that someone had been crucified, you didn't look upon it as being something wonderful. The thing that's made the difference is Jesus Christ. He has made the cross acceptable. If you've been living in this day, this was a cruel death. This was a, a death that you did not want to engage in. And to watch someone die of crucifixion was to watch someone die in agony and pain and anguish, to die a cruel and awful death. But the difference, the thing that's made the cross acceptable is Jesus Christ. Because he died for our sins upon the cross. The fact that Christ was crucified between criminals added to the shame. Verse 18 tells about that, where they crucified him, and two other with him, one on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. Two criminals were crucified with Christ here on Calvary. And so as he hung on that cross with that mob around him, with the people who have come from all around the city, remember this is the time of the Passover, so there's visitors from all over the place. That's why his title is written in Hebrew and Greek and, and in Latin because there's people from all over the empire have come together to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there is Christ hanging on the cross on top of the hill called Golgotha between two criminals for all the world to see. The soldiers were there. The Jews were there. His accusers were there. And some of his friends were there. And they all looked on. In verse 23, we read this. Then the soldiers in there crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, for every soldier of parts, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, 
woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and from my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. We read an event that was common to crucifixions, the parting of the garments of those crucified because they're hanging on the cross naked. And the soldiers would then divide the garments among them. They would tear off strips of cloth and give it to each other. When they came to Christ's vesture, it was seamless so that he decided to cast lots for it. And that was an unusual event, but that was in order that prophecy might be fulfilled. Psalm 22 and verse 18 tells about that. Close by the cross stood a group of women with John. And so we read in verse 25, now there stood by the cross Jesus's, uh, uh, of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Mother, woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to his disciples, to the disciple, Behold thy mother. From that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Here he has some friends around the cross. They have the courage to stand with Christ amid the hatred and the ridicule. Many of the followers of Christ have run away by this time, and all's left is these women and John. Their faithfulness, I'm sure, was a source of encouragement for the Lord. It certainly was a source of blessing as he turns to his mother and says that uh, John's going to become her son. And John, I want you to look after my mother. This is a, a very important time upon the cross as he acknowledges the love and the friendship of his mother and his friends. I wonder where we would stand if we were in Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago. Would he be at the foot of the cross? Would we be standing there as one of his faithful disciples? Or would we have ran away with the others? Or would you be there with the angry mob mocking him and cursing him because you don't know him? Where would you stand if you were at Calvary today? Christ is now in full control the situation which is amazing, he's dying upon the cross. Jesus Christ is in charge here. And now there's a scripture that needs to be fulfilled. So Jesus Christ says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Ensuring that another prophecy was fulfilled, Jesus Christ now, in full control of his faculties, full control of the situation, cries out, I thirst, and one soldier standing by gives him some cheap vinegar to drink and what follows next is one of the greatest statements in the whole of the word of God in John chapter 19 and verse 30 we read this when Jesus therefore received the vinegar he said it is finished bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. The once for all sacrifice has been made. Jesus Christ had come, the Lamb of God, who 
came to take away the sin of the world, according to John 1.29. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was the one that God ordained before the world began, would come and would die upon the cross of Calvary, that salvation might be purchased for you and for me, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have a home in heaven. And on the cross, just prior to giving up the ghost, Jesus Christ cries out, It is finished. The work I came to do is done. Salvation has been paid for. Redemption has been made. You can now be saved. The blood is shed. God is satisfied. The work is done. It is finished. He came to pay for your salvation and my salvation. He cries out those glorious words. It is finished. An old preacher was asked one day, what can I do to be saved? The preacher replied, it's too late. The man asked, do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved? Is there nothing I can do to get to heaven? The preacher replied, too late to do anything, for it's already been done. There's only one thing left to do, and that's to believe. It is finished. The price has been paid. Redemption has been purchased. Salvation is secure. Sins can now be forgiven. It is finished. We have a Savior who finished the work of our redemption on the cross of Calvary. And all you and I must do is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is finished. It's a powerful and glorious statement. So now whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Some unbelievers invented the idea that Christ didn't die. Notice, lastly with me this morning, the burial. In verse 31, The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate, that the legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers, uh, then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified of him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. We see from the evidence here that Jesus Christ did indeed die. They came to break the prisoner's legs, which is what they did in order to hasten death. Because crucifixion is usually by suffocation. Most die because they're suffocating. Because as they hang upon the cross and their body starts to lose blood and they start to lose the energy, they have to lift themselves up on their feet in order to expand their lungs to breathe. And then they, they find that the, as the, the body starts to get in pain and agony, they have to release that in order that they can relax. And then the lungs start to collapse and they can't breathe. And eventually they die, if not a blood loss, they die of asphyxiation. In order to hasten death, if there was a need to hurry the death, the soldier would come, and with a rod they would break the legs of those crucified, and in so doing would stop them from rising up on the cross, which meant that they would die more quickly. So when they come to break the legs of the, those crucified, they come to the two outside thieves, and they find that these two criminals 
are alive and they break their legs, but Jesus Christ's legs they did not break because he was already dead. So let me ask you a question. Did they get it wrong? Did they perceive he was dead when he wasn't dead and therefore Christ didn't really die upon the cross of Calvary? Well, that beggars belief because they were... They attended many crucifixions. This was their role, in the, a part of their role as part of the Roman centurion there in, in Jerusalem was that they would attend crucifixions and they knew when someone was dead. They knew what they, was do, they were doing. But just in case there's any doubts, we find that it says in verse 34, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and Water, just in case you're not convinced he was dead, a soldier takes a spear and rams it through his side, piercing the sack around the heart and piercing the heart, thus releasing that water sack around the heart and the blood from the heart. The blood and water come forth, and therefore we know he is dead. He died on the cross to save us from our sin. Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death. He died that you and I might have life. For the verse goes on to say, for the wage of sin is death, for the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ to the Lord. If he did not die, there is no payment for our sin. But he did die. So we can be saved. Two disciples then took him away for burial in verses 38 to 42. Joseph of Arimathea, and Zacchaeus, Nicodemus rather, Nicodemus rather, come and take him away to be buried. It says in verse 38, And after this, Joseph Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, was secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, and he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pound weight, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices. So the man of the Jews is to bury. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new sepulchre, wherein was no man laid. And they laid, uh, there, they, there lay they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. They take him out and they bury him. You know, Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary and his death was no accident. It was voluntarily, voluntary. He gave up the ghost, it says in verse 30. He gave up the ghost. He gave himself for us. And folks, it will take all of eternity for you and I to fully understand and have revealed to us all that happened on the cross that day. But we know this. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture so that we might be saved. His death means life for all who will believe. He suffered the shame and the mocking, the pain of the cross, the penalty uh, as penalty for our sins. And with his blood, he purchased our redemption. I trust this Easter will remember what Easter is really all about. You know, I, I typed into... Google this week, I wanted to get a picture of the front door of the church, so I typed in Easter and went to images, and every picture was just an Easter egg or an Easter bunny, and I thought, that's what our world is coming to. You've got to go looking elsewhere to find a picture 
of the crucifixion and the empty tomb. Easter's not about Easter eggs and bunnies. Last time I did uh, science, rabbits don't have eggs. It's not about Easter eggs. It's not about Easter bunnies. It's about Jesus Christ. He came from heaven's glory. He went to the cross of Calvary and there he died, declaring it is finished for you and for me that we might be saved. And three days later, he rose again. Which we'll see on Sunday. And that's what Easter's about. Let's not forget what happened 2,000 years ago. Christ died as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. I wonder today you're saved. There's been a time and place in your life where you've come acknowledging that you're a sinner before a holy God and the only means of salvation is Jesus Christ. You trust Him as your Savior. I trust that. And if you're saved today, I trust that we will give thanks to God today for Calvary.